0: Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast, this is our third episode in our discussion of the influential classic, um, however else you might like to call it. Uh, in the first episode, we started our discussion, introducing just a few of the issues surrounding Homer, the poet himself, uh, the Mycenaean people, and the semi-mythical age in which that story is set. Uh, both really are, which are full of mystery. Archaeology just does not fully answer questions such as. Was Homer a real person <laughs> or did, you know, did Ithaca even exist? Um, so we're left with complicated pieces of a l- strange, large game of Sudoku. If you want to look at it, it's kind of a puzzle. Uh, we tried to clearly portray that the Homeric poems are not historical accounts, but they're creative pieces. This, of course, becomes very obvious in the chapters about the wanderings. You've got yourself some six-headed monsters and glamorous witches that are, and that's obviously imaginative, but even the parts that seem to reflect real life, they still cannot possibly represent the reality of the Bronze Age or the Dark Age. I mean, uh, Homer didn't know those realities. We did suggest that there likely was a Trojan War of some sorts, and perhaps King Agamemnon was a real person, but that's just about as far uh, as we can extrapolate with really any kind of certainty. So... Uh, the Odyssey, nor the Iliad, for that matter, uh, they were not trying to paint a picture of the current society of the period. But they do reflect the values in Episodes 2 and 3 the way that we looked at. Uh, we spent time looking at those values.
0: True. And in the second a- episode, we tried to give an overview uh, and discuss Books 1 through 4, The Telemachy, that coming-of-age story where Telemachus, who was a baby when Odysseus left, arrives at a moment where he can embrace adulthood, or as they like to say, manhood. But for Telemachus, as for every other teenager who has lived on this planet, the transition from childhood to adulthood is not smooth. (laughs) Just like every other teenager, he's awkward and he's confrontational with his mother. Why does everyone do that? He cries in public, but ultimately he leaves home and takes chances in the outside world. And although he doesn't come back a hero, he does develop and maybe grow up a little. And we get to see uh, how this has happened when we get to his homecoming in chapter 15. He's learned to some degree, I guess, what a real man is. We're going to use that term. He learns how to talk to adults and he prop he practices proper zania. He sees relationships between men and women that are functional. He also gets to see some relationships that are dysfunctional. We see him at the end of the Telemachy trying to insert himself. And we see this agency as he chooses to give shelter to a homeless man. And this idea of home is where we want to go today.
1: And of course, last episode, we spent almost the entire talking about xenia or hospitality. And we talked about the examples of good xenia, like we saw in the Telemachy. But we also saw examples of bad xenia, most notably in Book 9 uh, through both the character of Polyphemus, but even Odysseus, really. Uh, we finished last episode leaving the island of the winds of Aeolia and arriving at the house of Circe, Christy, this is not the first woman we have met in the Odyssey, but she is one of your favorites. She is. (laughs) So before we get to Cersei and why you seem to like her as a woman, what do you see in general um, about how we should understand these female characters or, or should men and women see these characters similarly?
0: Well, it's an interesting question to raise, and much has been stated on that if you look in the in the literature. Uh, today, I do want to take a look at the role of gender in the book, as well as ancient Greek life. And we do have to remember that gender roles are not isolated. They're not just one thing, and they're not simple things, as we can clearly see in the chapter of The Wanderings. We also have to be honest with ourselves and recognize when we read texts from other cultures, but especially when we read from other time periods, we can't really understand what we're looking at in terms of the broader context of their society as a whole. You know, even as something as straightforward as we could say, oh, that's sexist or that's not sexist. You know, how do we know that? We can't understand the culture in any kind of way. So we have to understand that although we are projecting ourselves into the text, that's what it is. And we need to, you know, pull back just a little bit of that when we read that. One aspect of this narrative that I find fascinating is that Homer in the Odyssey does try to explore a very honest and raw reality between the genders. And this is in a highly patriarchal society, way more patriarchal than the society that I live
1: in today anyway. So what do you mean by that?
0: If you just look at it through the lens, like the modern day lens of a woman today, you could say, well, this is just an old story about a man who leaves his family to fight for another man's woman because she's the most beautiful woman in the world, objectified, and his friend wants his objectified woman back. So he leaves his own wife and son for 20 years, wandering around, sleeping with a bunch of women, evil men mostly, that all fall madly in love with him because, you know, he's just that hot. Then he comes back to his wife, who's just been perfectly faithful sitting there all that time, keeping uh, keeping house, and then he's going to swoop in, kills the bad guys, and live happily ever after. That is a very brazen, uninteresting fairy tale. (laughs) (laughs) And for a modern educated woman, it's not all that interesting. But what do we know about this story? Well, we know that highly educated modern women like the Odyssey, and they like a lot of classics. And how do we know this? Well, currently, half of the students today who study and teach classical studies are highly educated modern women. And so beyond that, how does anything survive 3,000 years if it's simplistic and uninteresting? So looking at that through that very simplistic lens is one way to approach the story, but it's not, in my view, the most satisfying way, uh, even if you want to focus on the dynamic between men and women in the story. So uh, this last week, I was really interested in, in thinking a little bit more about this idea of the dynamics between men and women, and so I took some time to read the analysis and, and commentary by who? somebody uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Emily Wilson, who I feel like is probably the expert on gender in the Odyssey, at least of anybody I know of.
1: <laughs> wow, you rarely give those kind of shout outs. I mean, uh, what should we know about this Dr. Wilson?
0: Well... Dr. Wilson, in 2017, became the first woman to ever translate the Odyssey into English. Now, she's not the first woman to ever translate the Odyssey. It's been translated before into other languages, but it had never been translated from the original Greek into English before by a woman.
1: Well, you know, to put that in perspective, how many English translations are there?
0: Oh my goodness, a lot. There are well over 60 translations Uh since the early days, and the translations have always been done by men, even though a lot of the historical uh, academics have not been. So obviously I was interested in the idea uh, of what Dr. Wilson thought her gender, what difference she thought her gender made and the differences in how she translated the ancient Greek. You know, there's an argument that she's a highly respected translator. She's not being asked to interpret the text, but literally translate it as faithfully to, from the original as possible. So does it make a difference?
1: What did she say on the topic after all? I mean, she literally thought about every single word in the entire text?
0: Yes, she had to. Every single word. And I was surprised uh, that so many people would ask her that same question. I mean, it was a little cliched, honestly. So as a woman, how did you translate blada, blada, blada? As if that would be so different. I mean, you'd think in some sense, maybe it wouldn't make a difference at all. I mean, Google Translate doesn't have a gender.
1: It <laughs> well, may have a female voice. Uh, it's
0: know. true, Siri. Uh,
1: well, I assume that was not Dr. Wilson's perspective.
0: No. And she made a very convincing argument, and it's very insightful if, if you want to Google her up and, and read some of the things that she had to say. Uh, she said, for one thing, translators, sometimes they read from each other and may copy different words and different ideas. She chose not to do that. She tried to translate her text originally without looking at what other people had said about those two things. And her, after going through this process... Her conclusion was that no two people will ever translate something the exact same way for a variety of reasons. Gender is just one of them. Our experiences and our personal culture absolutely cannot help but color our lives. And this will affect even basic things about how we will translate one very obvious word from one language to another. She gave an example that I thought kind of drew the attention to what she was meaning when she uh, talked about how Fagels and some other men who had translated uh, the Odyssey before her translated the word maid. So in the first four chapters, we saw this. We're going to see it again in the end of the book. You know, the people that were living in Odysseus' house were called women or maids. Well, Wilson points out that the original word in the Greek clearly has inside the word, the understanding that these were not just maids, they were slaves. And for her as a woman, she didn't feel like maids was a very good word to choose because it connotes choice and slave doesn't, which may, you know, make a difference from how you understand the nuance of the text in the end, because they're killed, So what happens at the end, which we'll talk about next week, why this happens is something that maybe just that choice of word could affect how you as a reader would understand it. So she's not making an argument. She's just choosing a word. The way we understand Circe and Calypso may also be influenced or colored in some sense by word choices. In her view, Homer is neutral in his descriptions of these women, and we don't, She said when you read the original text, there's not this judgment on Circe or Calypso as being negative people. But sometimes there are translations that use heavy-handed negative language that connotes some of the same things in the English. So understanding that our biases and our perspectives will always be part of our interpretation doesn't mean that one person's translation or a woman's translation would be better or worse. It's just another thing to take into consideration, something to think about. So let's think about it. What do you make of a story about a man who wanders around the ocean and pretty much all of the antagonists or impediments to him getting home are female?
1: (laughs) 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 Hmm, wouldn't fly today on modern television sitcoms you know uh, for starters for me that tells you a lot about female power Uh, there are few societies today that are as patriarchal as the societies of 3,000 years ago and yet I mean look at the emphasis placed on navigating a world of women
0: yeah <laughs>
1: if we you know if we assume that this is a story written by a man and the audiences are primarily male which I think we can assume both fairly easily at the very least the first statement of fact is that women cannot nor will not be overlooked regardless of any formalized power arrangement you know to simplify it um, perhaps Homer is saying something as simple as to underestimate women, is to be destroyed by them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, there's a starting point, because because of course that goes without saying. We all know that. But obviously there's more to it than that. So let's begin by looking at the power arrangement or the social structure in the Odyssey. Last week we talked about the Greek concept of xenia or xenia, depending how you want to pronounce it. Today uh, we do want to introduce a new term. Uh, Developed for us this Greek concept of the oikos or the household, the home, the basic unit around which we're going to structure community life, life in the Greek world centered around a man building his oikos, a man with no oikos was no man at all.
1: Uh, It's a great idea and so central to understanding what we're about to do. So the word oikos means household. Um, A person's oikos is everyone and everything within his orbit of influence. And oikos were led by strong men. And one way to think of it may be like, the Godfather and the Godfather movies, you know, but let's take out the crime element,
0: of course. <laughs> the and, mob. Yeah, the head of the family. The family.
1: Uh, now, now remember, this is a pre-city world as we understand cities today. Uh, a man of means, a good word may be an aristocratic man or a nobleman that would build his oikos or his home, his household. He would he would have his wife and his children, but that's just the beginning. He would also have his slaves and all sorts of them. And even these slaves, as we see in the Odyssey, had levels inside the hierarchy. And so in a social sense, home or oikos is much more than the physical space, although obviously it contains physical space, but it is a place with inside personal relationships, you know, the father-son, the husband-wife, the master-slave, king and competitors. And of course, in this society, uh, the man of the household would be the leader, but the household or the home is a collection of relationships. And so, an oikos is an economic unit as well as just a social one. And since men were often at war, uh, a lot of the economy or the business of running the oikos would be run by women. You know, notice all the weaving that goes on, uh, just as one example, you know, because weaving is an economic industry. And uh, this is interesting in the pre-industrial society, but, but it's not just weaving. I mean, there's agriculture. Uh, and as we'll see when Odysseus gets back to Ithaca, you know, archaeological evidence shows that households were running olive presses. They were building furniture. Uh, They were doing all kinds of self-sustaining things and maybe even, you know, commercial ventures. So a nobleman of means is absolutely defined by how he governs his household. And the bigger the household, you know, for example, more slaves, more land, more livestock, more gifts he accumulates, the more successful he is as a man and a more respected oikos
0: you know, Abby Adams comes to mind when you think of a woman running a household like that <laughs> in the absence of a woman. But that I know that's a digression. Anyway, let's go back to page one of our story. What do we know about Odysseus? Well, if we use the language of Wilson's translation, she says that this is a story about a complicated man. But what is this complicated man trying to do? He states that he wants to get back to his wife. Odysseus has proven his manhood, in one sense, by winning at war. He's gotten all this glory on the battlefield, which he very proudly talks about with King Alcinous. but that is not enough. And maybe it's not enough for anyone. It's only half enough. Penelope is central to the entire storyline because she is at the center of his oikos. She's at the heart of the story because Homer is suggesting... That a man without a good wife will struggle if he's going to try to build a good oikos. He's not just going to struggle. It's not going to happen. Odysseus' manhood in this sense is not complete. His glory is not complete if he cannot create a well-ordered oikos, something that will outlive him. What does a man have if he loses his oikos this is perhaps the unstated question Homer is asking. A man with no oikos is not a nobleman anymore, if we want to say it another way. In book 11, which we're going to do today, uh, Odysseus goes down to Hades and he runs into all sorts of people, one of which is Achilles. And he calls Achilles blessed. And he says, there's no one more blessed than you. There has never been, nor there will ever be an Achilles protest. Let's read his response from chapter, from book 11.
1: No winning words about death to me, shining Odysseus. By God, I'd rather slave on earth for another man, some dirt poor tenant farmer who scrapes to keep alive, than rule down here over all the breathless dead. You know, so in other words, I hate it so much down here, I'd rather be a person without an oikos than be down here, And which suggests really that a man without an oikos is about as low as you can go, regardless of glory.
0: Yes, he wasn't really slamming the men uh, at home more so than saying that he's not impressed with his new Hades lifestyle.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's all gone to Hades.
0: Oh, it's all gone to Hades. So getting back to Odysseus, we might assume that since he wants to get home, well, that's just because he's got so much burning passion for his wife and their marriage is so ideal. We can also assume that she feels the same way and that's what she wants. And the heart of the story is a true love story. But that is not what is stated. And I think that's what Dr. Wilson means by being careful about the complexities of the text and drawing conclusions based on what you expect to read from your own time period. Odysseus's return to Penelope is wrapped up in his return to his home, but it's his household, his oikos, his little kingdom. There's no doubt that Penelope is a part of that, but Odysseus does not go to the grave without reclaiming and establishing this oikos Uh,
1: yes i think so i mean another thing to notice is that all these noble women uh, the ones we're supposed to respect are identified through their relationship with their male oikos and no one of merit can exist outside this oikos system, and the head of the oikos is always going to be a male. Circe uh, and Calypso are independent women and unattached, mm-hmm. but they only exist in the mythological world, and that is part of why they are so dangerous. I mean, the sirens are mythological and definitely dangerous, and the monster Scylla and Charybdis are mythological and nothing but lethal. I mean, To live well in humanity is to live well in community, seems to be the message. And men must express success within this oikos system, and so must women. So at the end of the day, uh, not even if you are endlessly spectacularly gorgeous and powerful and sexually seductive, if you're unattached, if you're outside of an oikos, it appears you are dangerous. (laughs) And you function outside the normal order of things, and in some ways you're incomplete.
0: Yes, and... To be honest, there are those that would say, you know, there's a modern equivalency of that. I mean, we would definitely say it differently. Uh, but there's a lot of discussion and talk about balancing a career and versus a personal life. And your personal life would be your oikos if you want to, you know, modernize the language. It's not all that different. We just have to take out the gendered terms from the equation to look at it. Maybe we would see it today.
1: Maybe. Uh, You know, that's slightly controversial. (laughs) Maybe so. And sometimes it's worth thinking about, uh, or if you're listening to this with a class, discussing, but let's talk about... These dangerous women.
0: Okay, well, there's Cersei, my favorite. She's independent, and she turns men into pigs, which is fun. (laughs) But she's not unkind. I think that's why I like her. You know, last episode that's not
1: unkind. No, well, you know, they had
0: it coming. Last episode, we left Odysseus upset because he'd been blown back to King Olus, and was. He wasn't getting another bag of wind. That's the problem. At this point, Odysseus still has quite a large group of men that he's responsible for. I mean, they'll leave King Aeolus as a group of 12 ships, and they're going to row for a week, only to have a nasty encounter with a disagreeable Astrigonian woman. And I love how she's described. She's described as huge as a mountain (laughs) crag, and she fills them with horror. Uh, like Polyphemus, the Lastragonian people don't feed their guests, Porzinia, Instead, they eat them. They also fling rocks at Odysseus' crew. It says that they spear them like fish, and unfortunately, they end up killing most of them. Unfortunately, 11 of the 12 ships will go down. Only Odysseus's ship survives the onslaught of, of the Lastragonians. So by the time he meets Circe... He's down to one ship and about 45 guys left. When they get to her island, they split up into two groups. Eurylochus, one of his crewmen, takes 22 of these men, and they're going to try to look, and they finally scoop out this palace. But when they find it, they see that it's surrounded by all these wild animals. Well, at least they should be wild, but they're not wild. They're tame, even though they're wolves and lions. We're certainly going to understand not too far along that these Animals are tamed because they're not actually animals. She's turned them into animals. So we meet Cersei. But when we meet her, you know, she's not ravaged. She's not barbaric like a Lastragonian woman. She's playing the part of a good woman, she's weaving industry. These women and their weaving. They do a lot of it. Anyway, Cersei invites them in like a good hostess. She gives them wine, cheese, barley, all the things you're supposed to do with one exception. In the wine, she puts a drug. Then she strikes her wand and poof, there they are, into pigs. (laughs) (laughs) Only their leader, Eurylochus didn't drink the wine and he escapes to warn the others
1: oh my gosh well <laughs> you know Circe is magical I mean she's a witch and an enchantress yes a goddess otherworldly and yet she's also very much expressed as a woman and perhaps that's what makes her so dangerous to Odysseus. Even her weaving is described as divine. Uh, You know, there are two sides to Cersei. She's the sexual temptress and evil witch, but she also excels at the art of being a woman in a traditional and domestic sense.
0: Yes, she's a lovely hostess. Either way, uh, she's too much for Odysseus, to the point that Hermes, the messenger of the gods, takes it upon himself to intervene and help Odysseus. Let's read what Hermes has to say to Odysseus about our lovely Circe.
1: Where are you going now, my unlucky friend, trekking over the hills alone in unfamiliar country? And your men are all in there, in Circe's palace, cooped like swine, hawk by jowl in the styes. Have you come to set them free? Well, I warn you, you won't get yourself home. You'll stay right there, trapped with all the rest. But wait. I can save you. Free you from the great danger. Look, here is a potent drug. Take it to Cersei's halls. Its power alone will shield you from that fatal day. Let me tell you of all the witch's subtle craft, she'll mix you a potion. Lace the brew with drugs, but she'll be powerless to bewitch you even so. This magic herb I give will fight her spells. Now here's your plan of action, step by step. The moment Circe strikes with her long, thin wand, you draw your sharp sword sheathed at your hip and rush her as fast as if to run her through. She'll cower in fear and coax you to her bed. But don't refuse the goddess's bed, not then, not if she's to release your friends and treat you well yourself. But have her swear the binding oath of the blessed gods. She'll never plot some new intrigue to harm you once you lie there naked." Never unman you. Strip away your courage.
0: (laughs) Well, there you go.
1: (laughs) So, so is the goal or the trick to subjugate Circe?
0: No, I don't think so. We'll see later that Circe's oath is conceded from a position of honor. Odysseus asks for it. He doesn't demand it. I mean, she's always going to be above him. She's a goddess. He's not. Hermes helps him get on Cersei's good side, and when he does, she speaks to him with a human voice and uses her magic for good. She turns the men back into men from pigs, but she gives them an upgrade,
1: <laughs> Saves their bacon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she saves their bacon. She makes them better versions of their former selves, the uplifts or whatever, you know, we do today. It's nice. She treats them really well. And after the small issue of exposing them as pigs gets resolved, at the end, she really wants Odysseus to stay, but she doesn't make him. She doesn't hold him hostage she lets him go. And not only does she let him go, she helps him. She shows him the way and tells him how to get home. Unfortunately, though, she informs him that he's got to make a trip to Hades. Hmm. The broader point, though, I do want to emphasize it, is he does want to go home. Life with Cersei is nice, but to stay there is a distraction. It would keep him from building his goal. And what is his goal? establishing that oikos. It would be getting away from the main thing to stay there. And as my daddy has repeated to all of us kids since we were little, (laughs) you gotta keep the main thing the main thing.
1: I've heard it too. Well... (laughs) If the main thing is to get home, they have to go through Hades to get there. And, you know, we've seen that before in literature.
0: Oh, yes. Your old buddy Carl Jung would say it's inevitable.
1: (laughs) That's true.
0: (laughs) Well, let's read where Odysseus delivers the bad news about having to go to Hades to his men.
1: Wow. You think we are headed home, our own dear land? Well, Circe sets us a rather different course down to the house of death and the awesome one Persephone there to consult the ghost of Tiresias, seer of Thebes. So I said, and it broke my shipmates' hearts. They sank down on the ground moaning, tore their hair, but it gained us nothing. What good can come of grief? Back to the swift ship at the water's edge we went, our spirits deep in anguish, faces wet with tears. But Circe got to the dark hole before us, Tethered a ram and black ewe close by, slipping past unseen. Who can glimpse a god who wants to be invisible, gliding here and there?
0: See how nice she is. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Except they're going to Hades.
0: (laughs) Well, Yes, and off they go. Persephone, by the way, is Hades' wife. She's queen of the underworld. There's a lot we could say about the underworld. It's a place you have to sail to in the Homeric world. It's located beyond the river that encircles the world. In other places of Greek mythology, we see that it's split up. It's not just one place. There are different levels, and some are better than others. Would that be
1: the River Styx?
0: Well, there's actually more than one river, but yes. However, in this story, it doesn't seem... To be that awesome of a place. At least we didn't hear Achilles liking it very much. But Odysseus, while he's there, meets quite a few people. He runs into his mother, Anticlea, and Agamemnon and Hercules and Ajax. He even runs into Jocasta. You remember her from Oedipus? Mm-hmm. There's a long list of women, really, that he runs into. And we don't have time to focus on all the little stories that he finds out about Hades. Suffice it to say, though, he does meet Tiresias. Uh, the seer who we've met him before too in the Oedipus stories. And Tiresias tells him what to do and more importantly, what not to do if he is to make it home. So let's read Tiresias's advice.
1: A sweet, smooth journey home, renowned Odysseus. That is what you seek, but a God will make it hard for you. I know you will never escape the one who shakes the earth, quaking with anger at you still, still enraged, Because you blinded the Cyclops, his dear son. Even so, you and your crew may still reach home, suffering all the way, if only have the power to curb their wild desire and curb your own. What's more, from the day your good trim vessel first puts in, at Athronesia Island flees the cruel blue sea. There you will find them grazing herds and fat flocks, the cattle of Helios, God of the sun, who sees all and hears all things, Leave the beasts unharmed, your mind set on home, and you all may still reach Ithaca, bent with hardship. True. But harm them in any way, and I can see it now. Your ship destroyed, your men destroyed as well. And even if you escape, you'll come home late and come a broken man, all shipmates lost, alone in a stranger's ship, and you will find a world of pain at home, crude, arrogant men devouring all your goods, Courting your noble wife, offering gifts to win her—no doubt, you will pay them back in blood when you come home.
0: Well, we hear it again. Stay <laughs> focused. That's the message of the wanderings. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Don't listen to the voices that can distract you. Don't allow yourself to be seduced by the by the by these things that are going around. It seems the difference between the one man who makes it versus the 44 men who die in large part has to do with one's ability to be focused and the others who just cannot. And so it happens pretty much the way he says it. They go back to Circe. There's other things that happen. They have this unfortunate incident with Elpenor. Uh, They go by the sirens, those temptresses who sing and coax men to come close. But when they do, these men are lured to their deaths. Uh, They're going to avoid that pitfall because Odysseus will put wax in the ears of his men and then they will tie him up with ropes. But then they get to the female monsters, Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla is a six-headed sea monster. She rapidly and unexpectedly snatches six men at a time as they go by. Charybdis is different. She's an enormous whirlpool that swallows Odysseus' ship. Charybdis swallows her victims slowly while Scylla takes them by surprise. You know, you can interpret those metaphors in Hmm. any number of ways. But no matter how you do, by the time Odysseus gets to the end of chapter 12, he is literally hanging to a fig tree trunk for dear life alone. Everyone else is dead.
1: And I would like to point out one of my favorite bands, the Police, have a song called I'll Be Wrapped Around Your Finger, and they talk about uh, Scylla and Charybdis. They mention it deliberately in this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, it's very hard to work those lyrics in. You know, those are not good rhyming words, but...
0: Well, you know, everybody can find that metaphor in their life somewhere, I guess. That's well, why I said there's just so many different ways to see this.
1: It's a rock and a hard place. I mean, the, this exactly. is the easiest... Tr- We've all been
0: where, there. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, you know, Odysseus has resisted all the temptations of the mythological world, but he has one more temptation. And I would like to point out, it was very important to Greek philosophers, you know, the Aristotle, the Plato. Yeah, they all, the they come later. The whole, self-mastery was always at the core of their philosophies. And we see it here in, in, the, in the way it's put into the story. So... um You know, he's got one more temptation. Calypso will keep him for seven years. Uh, You know, that's an archetypal number. And he's tempted with the most tempting thing anyone could ever be offered. Want to guess what it is?
0: Sexy women.
1: Eternal life. (laughs) Eternal life. I mean, you know, what is the value of an oikos? Is an oikos worth that? Do you give up your oikos to have eternal life? And uh, Odysseus has a long time to sit around and think about that. And in the end, he is unequivocal. He wants to go home. Uh, and with Zeus's permission, uh, he drifts back to the world of men and of humans, and he's made it. He's resisted all the challenges, the temptations, the darkness. He's made his personal journey. Uh, he's found the king who will help him finally restore his own oikos. You know, not just get home, but really restore everything.
0: Yes, and that's not going to make everybody happy. There's one person in particular that's not happy about that. Let's hear Poseidon's complaint to Zeus when he finds out about how Odysseus shows up back home.
1: Zeus, father, I will lose all my honor now among the immortals. Now there are mortal men who show me no respect. Phacians, too, born of my own loins, I said myself that Odysseus would suffer long and hard before he made it home, but I never dreamed of blocking his return, not absolutely at least, once you had pledged your word and bowed your head. But now they've swept him across the sea in their swift ship. They've set him down in Ithaca, sound asleep, and loaded the man with boundless gifts, bronze and hordes of gold and robes. I... More plunder than he could ever have won from Troy if Odysseus had returned intact with his fair share.
0: (laughs) So notice what Poseidon's mad about. He's outraged, not that Odysseus is alive, but that his oikos will be restored in full. And he's going to punish the Phaeacians by turning their boat to stone and then by building a mountain ridge around their home, which is unfortunate. But at this point in the story, we don't really care much about them anymore, poor things, because our attention has been redirected to Ithaca. What's it going to be like now that he's there?
1: You know, uh, there's a lot of discussion of people who return from military service that can really identify with this conundrum that's expressed in um, Odysseus' homecoming. I mean, after all, you know, what is Odysseus if he's not a veteran combatant and Uh, You know, yes, Odysseus is home, but home isn't how he left it. Uh, In fact, when he looks at it, he doesn't even recognize it. Uh, It has to be reclaimed. And, you know, homecomings, as anyone knows who's been away for a long time, aren't always as we have imagined them in our heads. I mean, we're different people. The people we left are different. And if Odysseus is going to restore his world and uh, reclaim or perhaps really recreate his oikos, He will have to listen to the voice of wisdom and that happens to come from athena
0: our girl athena well when we started the book uh we met two other nobles who came home from war and in many ways uh penelope can be compared to helen now odysseus's homecoming will be compared to agamemnon who we met in hades he didn't make it to menelaus and to nestor It's interesting to notice, if we're going to look at it like that, that Odysseus's wanderings are expressed through this series of female aggressions. And what are female aggressions? Well, they're distractions. There's traps, sexuality, deceitful voices, all kinds of things, all these metaphors that we've seen displayed in the world of imagination, personified primarily by female monsters. And the nature of the aggressions are going to change as well.
1: You know, I was actually surprised to see that really only a portion of the story is about the wanderings, uh, and it's told in a backstory, and the wanderings is really what we think the story is about, but we're only in book 12, and there are literally 12 more to go, and you know, the climax is not getting home, not really, I mean, it's the external homecoming versus the internal homecoming, and he's home externally, but that doesn't mean much at this point, it's just a halfway point. Things have to be ordered for relationships to be right. There must be a second homecoming. It's a little unsettling, really, really, so it's not over.
0: No. Uh, And there's one more thing uh, that I want to talk about because today, you know, we are talking gender. Let's not forget about Penelope. Interestingly enough, Homer never lets us see inside Penelope's head. In fact, he very intentionally conceals from the reader any insight into what Penelope, what does she want? What will this homecoming mean for her? Penelope has spent 20 years weaving. Now think about that. This is weaving before headphones and podcasts. (laughs) I mean, the time she spends weaving is time where she's doing nothing primarily but thinking. And Penelope, as described in this story, is a person who thinks, and she thinks carefully. That's why she's well-suited to her husband. That's one thing that has been pointed out over and over again. She matches him with her cunning. Except for her, it's more challenging. Her options are greatly reduced. She has less choices than Odysseus ever had. And in some ways, she is going to need or has needed way more cunning to navigate this world of men, than Odysseus ever needed to navigate the wild sea and that assortment of female dangers that he met along the way.
1: Hmm, quite a claim. So, where do you think that will leave these two when they meet up?
0: Well, the short answer is in different places. I <laughs> mean, and that's where we're going to pick up next episode. The grand finale will consist. Of these six recognition scenes that lead us to Homer's vision of the promise that no matter how far out of sorts your life has gotten, there's always a way to find home, which is not necessarily a physical place, but an established and recognized place with meaningful relationships. The idea that each of us, potentially male or female, can restore our oikos And although what we call an oikos today clearly isn't the same thing as what the Greeks had in mind, I mean, the good Lord knows our households have more configurations than even Odysseus himself could imagine. It's a nice idea, and I think it's the enduring legacy of the story, this idea that the hope of building one is always alive, no matter how far away it feels, how lost we feel, how screwed up choices we've made in our world. If we can just hang on to that fig tree over that whirlwind that's trying to kill us, we too can restore our oikos and build a home once again.
1: Yes, we can, <laughs> and that is regardless of our gender.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you're enjoying this odyssey. If you are, please support us by sharing an episode with a friend, uh, either through text or Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, or However it is you share your favorite things. Um, Also, take a second to give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And, of course, always feel free to communicate with us. We are always here and ready to hear your ideas on our favorite classics.
0: Peace out.